But we are going to be talking about laws today. We're going to be talking about the Ten Commandments and the passage from Deuteronomy that, uh, that explain the Ten Commandments. If you've been with us in worship, you know that we are following something called the Narrative Lectionary, which is a division of passages of Scripture that's designed to give the overarching sweep of Scripture. So it's not, it's not an every verse kind of thing, but it's, it's designed to look at the, at the narrative of Scripture as a whole and, and see where God is active and where humans are in the midst of that. So we've been cruising through Old Testament history. Uh, We've been looking at some familiar stories, but I'm always surprised at the new insight we can get even as we read stories that we've read hundreds of times before. In September, we began in Genesis, and we saw how we were created to be. We were created to be, uh, we were created as good. We were created as whole. And in our creation, we were in perfect relationship with God and perfect relationship with one another and perfect relationship with the created order around us. We just reread that section in, in confirmation today and saw that God created everything good and had taken so much care in creation. Abundance and wholeness defined the day. And then we saw how it all came crashing down and brokenness entered the picture and we shrank away from God and from one another. And yet we see the character of God prevail even in the midst of that. We saw the promise of offspring come true for Abraham and Sarah. We saw Jacob as he wrestled with God and became broken and yet also made whole through that experience. And we saw the very nature of God revealed to Moses. But as we come to our scripture today, a lot has happened with God and with Moses and Israel since God heard the groaning of the Israelites and remembered the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A lot's happened since God looked upon the people and took notice of them. A lot's happened since God's attention turned to a reluctant refugee who asked, Who am I that I should go? And by the way, who are you? In the midst of that, God answered, I am And so then Moses returned to Egypt to deliver his people. He met with Pharaoh, and eventually that led to great smitings of the Egyptian people. It led to awesome signs that the Israelites could see. And then Israel was released dramatically through the Red Sea from Pharaoh's bondage. And as we come to the scripture today, now finally after generations of wandering, the promised land is in sight This setting for Deuteronomy is east of the Jordan River, 40 years after that famous escape from Egypt. And the Israelites are waiting in Moab before this new generation will cross into the land of Canaan. And so that's the context in which Moses is addressing the people today. Uh, That's the context in which the book of Deuteronomy starts. And Deuteronomy literally means a second law in Greek. And the book, the whole book focuses on the laws and codes that were being assigned to the people of Israel that would make them the distinct people of God, that would set them apart, that would show them how to live in this new reality of being in the promised land. So we're going to be taking a look at the first of Moses' sermons today, the most famous one, the Ten Commandments. As Moses addresses the people of Israel, he's reciting again the law that God, of God that had been handed down to him directly at Mount, Sinai, at Mount Sinai. So hear these words from Deuteronomy 5. 
Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the, dec the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Horeb was another word for Sinai, another name for the place. The covenant was not with our ancestors that the Lord made. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the, fi out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land, that you're, in the, land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. As he presents this message, Moses is serving as pastor. He's interpreting the law of God to the people and explaining and exhorting them to covenant faith. He's trying to draw them in and help them to understand what God has been asking. Moses had been the one to originally receive the Ten Commandments. Sometimes the Ten Commandments are referred to as the Ten Words or sometimes the Decalogue. And Moses got them directly from God. And now he's expanding them and explaining them and applying them in a less formal way. He's helping the people of Israel to connect the laws to the context and situation where they currently are as they are waiting to take possession of the promised land. And again, we could look at each commandment in detail. Each one could be a sermon on its own. Each one is so important and so rich. But there's also a lot to be learned by looking at them as a whole. And so that's how we're going to look at them today. As he presents the ten words to the people, Moses' concern isn't history. It's, it's transformation. 
He's seeking to persuade this new generation to recommit to the covenant that God made with their parents at Sinai. And as they're about to enter the promised land, the land that had been given by God to their ancestors, they were to renew this covenant with God. And so there are a few things that we're reminded of when we look at this passage as a whole. Uh, first, the Ten Commands, Commandments were required because of sin. Second, uh, they were a gift of grace addressed to the redeemed people of God. They require our complete acceptance as one whole, and they bring us closer to God and closer to one another. And so let's take a look at some of these ideas together. First, the Ten Commandments were required because of sin. We already talked about creation and how we were created whole and complete and in complete, open, vulnerable relationship with one another and with God, but that all came crashing down in the fall. When Pastor James preached about that a few weeks ago, he mentioned that the one rule— don't eat from this particular tree, was actually a grace to Adam and Eve because in the midst of the abundance of creation, there was only one restriction that would help them to define their relationship with God. And yet, as we know, the temptation for the knowledge of good and evil proved to be entirely too much, and so the relationship with God was broken. And brokenness makes us shrink back from peace with God and with one another. And so now that one rule has to be expanded, first to these ten, and then later to the hundreds of laws and codes that follow. And all these things had to be added so that we could continue to relate to God and to one another as the chosen people of God. So at this point in Israel's history, faith in God was challenged by the practice of fertility gods Economic power had begun to shift from the countryside to the cities, and urban moneylenders charged exorbitant rates to farmers and claimed land of delinquent debtors. Debtors had to sell themselves into slavery so that they could buy food to feed their families. Political power became corrupt. Judges took bribes and showed favor to the wealthy. Economically and politically, the gap widened and widened between the rich and the poor. Does this sound a little familiar? It's been thousands of years, and yet in so many ways we're still in the exact same place. Although we live in a different time, we're still very much dealing with these same sorts of challenges. So many things have crept in to steal our allegiance and our faith. And we might not refer to them as other deities, but they're there nonetheless. Predatory lending is still a problem, especially among those with less resources, the gap between the rich and the poor has increased by astounding amounts. Um, as of yesterday, there were 2,640 billionaires in the world, and their net worth ranged from just over the threshold with $1 billion to those who claim the top three spots on the list of wealthy people with $150 billion, $190 billion, and $260 billion, res respectively. And that's um, no surprise. It'll be Jeff Bezos, uh, Bernard, Bernard Arnault of Louis Vuitton fame, and then Elon Musk. And so they are the three wealthiest people in the world right now. These men and their companions in the Billionaire Club are seeing fluctuations in their net worth of between 18 and $185 million a day. And their lifestyles aren't changing a bit. 
So I, I can't even wrap my brain around that kind of wealth. And at the exact same time, there are over 2 billion people in the world living below their country's respective societal poverty lines. And that means that they can't meet the obligations uh, that are needed to live life in the country where they're living. And, and we're not talking about extras. We're talking about basics of food and shelter and health care. We don't have to look hard to find corruption and brokenness these days. Politically, no matter which side of the aisle you're on, we can point to very clear examples. And all around us, relationships are broken. Marital relationships, friendship relationships, even relationships in the church struggle and are broken because we have fallen so short of the mark. Because we are broken people, because we're sinful people, we have to be reminded of rules. We have to be told not to kill one another and not to take what isn't ours and not to bear false witness because our natural inclination is to want what others have and to refuse to rest because it feels as though the world will come crashing down around us if we do. It's our natural inclination to claim our independence against everyone, including our parents and our ancestors. We need laws to keep us from falling apart. Think about how we have to guide the little children in our lives, the ones we're responsible for. As the adults in their lives, we have to limit their candy intake, and we have to force them to take naps, and we have to remind them not to take things that aren't theirs, because without rules, they would be over-sugared, over-tired little tyrants, right? We've all, we've all seen these kids in our lives. We are parents to them in many cases. Without rules, without guides, we don't care at all about the needs of other people in our lives. Likewise, even as adults, even as Christians, even as faithful people, we need the rules and statutes offered by the Ten Commandments as guides and limits so that our connection with God and our connection with one another can be restored. The rules help to protect our relationship with our Creator and with the neighbors that we've been given because all of these things have been broken by our sinfulness. But even though these rules are required by our sin, by our shortcomings, by our failures, these rules are also a gift that have been addressed to the redeemed people of God, both when they were given and today. It's important to note that these rules weren't given to Canaan. They weren't given to Egypt. They were given to the people that God chose to be representatives of grace and glory among the nations. It's actually unrealistic to expect those who haven't been redeemed to live according to the principles and commitments of the Ten Commandments. These commandments were given specifically to protect the people's relationship with God and their relationship with one another. The rules weren't punishments. They weren't restrict restrictions. They weren't given to, you know, keep everyone from, from straying. They were given as a gift to help us relate to one another. Like I asked the kids the, the rules were given so that we might continue to have a good relationship with God, not that we might straddle both and see how far we could get away with things. The laws weren't a way of salvation, and they weren't a burdensome obligation. They were a grace. And it's, that's hard to imagine because we don't often think about laws as grace, but 
They were a gracious guide for God's people so that they could live according to God's will. You know, what separates Yahweh, the God of Israel, from all the other deities of the day is communication. Not only does Yahweh speak to the people, but Yahweh speaks in a language that the people can understand. And so this divine revelation of the Ten Commandments is evidence of a God who wants to continue in relationship, even when that relationship has been broken. How incredible is that, that the God of the universe continues to want to be in relationship with us and in relationship with evil, or with Israel, even in the face of evil, even in the face of our continued disobedience. I know that I'm not nearly so gracious as many times I have definitely thought in my head And sometimes I've even said out loud, I'm so angry with you and so upset with what you've done that I don't even want to look at you right now. I don't want to be around you. I don't want to associate with you. I can't be in relationship with you. My my heart doesn't want to continue in a relationship with those who have offended me or gone against what I've asked them to do or haven't, haven't done what I've asked or broken relationship with me in some way. And I'm sure many of you can relate to those sorts of feelings. And yet our God is so much more gracious than that. Even in light of the disobedience and fallen nature of humanity, God responds with grace by offering rules and conditions for relationship. In the giving of these rules and in the forming of the covenant with Israel, God is speaking to a rebellious and sinful people, people who had turned their backs, and yet God is still longing for them to live up to their potential as the chosen ones. And so the gift of the law wasn't given to show us just how woefully short we fall, how inadequate we are. The commandments weren't given to trick us or to hold us to an impossible standard. I mean, who among us can honor their mother and father every single minute of every single day? doesn't happen in my house, I know for sure. They weren't given as a trick or a standard, and they were not given as a means to salvation. One one commentator said that to use these laws of God to earn salvation as a way to win your soul's way into heaven was like trying to build a faster-than-the-speed-of-light spaceship with only the parts on a child's power wheels. It's not possible, and it's silly and foolish to even try. It's not going to get you even close. And in the same way, it's not possible to earn salvation through the law. And that was never God's intent. Law wasn't given as a death dealer. It was given as a gracious gift, reminding the Israelites of what God had already done for them and helping them to learn how to be God's people. You can't understand the Old Testament witness without understanding that, that the law isn't a burden placed on us by an oppressive taskmaster. It was given to promote life with God and life with one another. And obedience to God's will as outlined in the commandments is an act of worship in response to God's gracious self-revelation. As a gift, the law was also given in the context of relationship. It wasn't some impersonal God that just came down and dropped Ten Commandments and said, hey, follow those. I'll be over here. God made a covenant with us. Moses is very careful to use those words. He didn't say that God made a covenant with your parents. He didn't say that 
long time ago, God made a covenant. He said, God made a covenant with us. The relationship came first. God doesn't give the law as a means of establishing relationship. God establishes the relationship and then gives the law. God didn't say, hey, here are all the things you need to do in order for me to love you. God loved us first and then gave the law in response to that. The Ten Commandments were given in the form of a treaty, uh, but it wasn't the kind of treaty that reflected a, a master's conquest of a superior or of a, of a, um, of a people. It didn't, re- it didn't reflect that difference in power. Yahweh first brought Israel into faithful, intimate relationship. We know that because they know God's name. They know who God is, and they've seen God's faithfulness in their exodus from Egypt. These things were established, and then God laid out the requirements of that relationship because they were already the chosen and redeemed people of God. Now Israel is learning how to be God's people, a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the, na- these are the names that Israel is given over and over again. The gift comes before the commandment and in the context of relationship. As we look at this passage in light of the New Testament as well, we might say that the good news of God's love, the gospel, comes before the law. And we see that echoed over and over again in Scripture. And it's true for us today, too. God draws us into relationship before we're ever asked to conform to the rules of the law. And we're asked to conform not to earn our salvation, but so that we might learn to love God and to love one another more fully. Moses, of course, points out in his sermon that the generation receiving these words from Moses was not the generation that had experienced this covenant with God. These are the people that grew up after the revelation at Sinai. They had heard about the plagues and the Pharaoh. They had heard about the mysterious parting of the sea. They had heard their parents and grandparents speak of those early days of wandering. They had heard stories of the pillars of fire and columns of smoke, but they hadn't experienced it directly. And so Moses' speech was a challenge to a generation who had heard about God to take hold of what their parents had been asked to take hold of. And their parents had messed it up. I don't know if you remember, but in the Exodus um, telling of the Ten Commandments, we know that before Moses was even down the mountain with the tablets, the people of Israel had already made an idol. And so Moses is giving this second chance to accept this covenant, to become the people God called us to be. Moses says that God made a covenant with us, with this current generation of Israelites. Despite the failures of the previous generation, God kept coming to the people and offering this covenant. Yahweh's offer remains on the table to be received by those who were gathered and those who would come after. And and the truth of what Moses was proclaiming wasn't just confined to that second generation as they were waiting to go into the promised land. It also speaks to the generations that would come after, the ones that would live in the land, the ones who would live in exile and diaspora outside the land again. The covenant was believers with, with believers in all times and places. 
these words proclaim that time has transcended and it is just the same as if we were at that mountain with Moses, if we were there when the Lord spoke all these words through Moses. God made that covenant with the people of God at the time, but God makes that covenant with us too. And we, just like them, are being called to hear and observe what's being asked of us. Each generation is called upon to enter anew into the covenant that God has made with Israel at Sinai. Not only are we called to renew this covenant, but we're called to accept these commandments and the covenant completely. The principles laid out here, these Ten Commandments, aren't pick and choose. They're, they're cast as absolute, unconditional commands without qualification. They're absolute and universal and permanent in fact, they weren't so much a law code, and a lot of them you can't even really say what, what constitutes breaking them. What, what is honoring your father and mother? Where is that line? What is not coveting someone else's stuff? You know, how far can you get away with that? That wasn't their point. It wasn't a law code to say, first you're on this side, and now you've stepped over the line. In, instead, these Ten Commandments were given as a worldview to govern the relationship between the redeemed and their redeemer, and between the members of the created and redeemed community of God. They, they set down a pattern that would define relationship with God and relationship with one another. As you know, the first commandment declares that there is only one God, Yahweh, and Yahweh has a right to exclusive allegiance. And then every command that follows shows ways of demonstrating that allegiance and demonstrating that devotion to Yahweh. Yahweh's right to proper rep representation, the right of all members of the household to humane treatment, which was at the root of the, the command about the Sabbath, the right to parental and ancestor respect, the right to fidelity in marriage, the right to own property, to an honest and fair hearing in court, the right to marital security, and the, the right to secure ownership of household property. All of these things bring together What's important for Israel's life, they're religious, they're familiar, and their so, and their social connections. Nothing is left out of these rules. There's no area of life that's untouched. And so in their entirety, they demonstrate that the basic guidelines of life in community with one another and the fundamental requirements for Israel's relationship with God is to, to follow these things and to respect these things and to use them as a pattern for all that we do. As we've been studying the narrative lectionary, we have focused on relationship with God. God created us and breathed life into us and made a covenant with us. God encounters us personally, and the nature of God is revealed to us. And relationship is at the heart of this passage, too. Moses isn't teaching just... For the sake of information, I've already said, you know, these laws weren't given as a way of, of keeping everyone in line. This teaching was an effort to elicit a response of love and obedience, of fear and reverence for the God that created us. These rules were the way of freedom in our relationship with our creator God and with one another. It, it kind of seems odd to associate rules with freedom. Often we think of rules as barriers or roadblocks or a list of prohibitions and restrictions. And we think of freedom as an end in and of itself when we get to do whatever we want and, and take whatever we want without 
anybody telling us we can't. We assume freedom means that we can do or say whatever we please without consequences, but through these commandments, we understand that true freedom isn't when the powerful take whatever they want. It comes instead when we honor our neighbor, when we live a healthy life and take care of our stuff and the stuff of those around us. Freedom isn't when the strong conquer the weak, but it's when the bodies and lives and properties and relationships of everyone are protected and their rights are respected. In lifting these things, we're drawn more fully into relationship with our neighbor and with the God who created us. In this sermon, Moses recites and applies the Ten Commandments and then rehearses the history of Israel with the people. If if you read on in chapter 5, he reminds them of where they've been and where they're going. And now they're about to take possession of the promised land, and they need to understand where they've been. And they need to have these commands and decrees and laws at their heart before they move ahead if they want to enjoy any success in this land flowing with milk and honey that they're about to take possession of. And so as we move into chapter 6, Moses concludes his sermon. And once again, he calls them to hear. He says, hear, O Israel. That phrase, Shema, is the name that we give to this particular passage in chapter 6. It's a well-known passage. It's often recited um, by Jews and Christians even to this day. This Shema, this call to hear, is a bridge between the commandments and then the rest of Deuteronomy that's going to continue to lay out instructions. And so I want you to hear these words from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Just as Jesus would later do, this passage um, sums up all of the laws. Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love God, the one God of Israel, and to love others. And here Moses is summing up the law, and he's imploring the Israelites to make the love of God central to all that they did, heart and mind and strength. Moses is asking them to pass these rules and these truths on from generation to generation. To love God is to be loyal and to keep God's commandments and to walk in the way of the Lord and to heed the decrees and statutes and ordinances of God is the way that we show love to God. As Moses finishes this sermon in in chapter 6, he's reminding the people that to love God involves the entirety of your building. Just like the Ten Commandments covered every aspect of life together, to love God covers every aspect of who we are as humans, our hearts, which is our emotion and our will, our mind, our thoughts, our mind, which in the Hebrew the word means our appetites, our desires, our whole self. And our strength, which means greatly or exceedingly. In this passage, it refers to our physical strength, our economic strength, our social strength, our physical things, tools, livestock, riches, 
all of our resources. And as it's used in this way, it's calling us to use all these things even to the point of spending them all. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your strength. Along with the Israelites, we're called to love God without reservation, without qualification. We're called to love God without holding anything back, our inner being, our whole person, and everything we have at our disposal. This kind of love isn't an emotion. It's not affection. It's not something that can be swayed by how we're feeling that day. This is the kind of love that is covenant love, and it's demonstrated in actions that seek the best of one another, just as Christ sought the best for us. This passage, the Shema, was an oath of allegiance, an affirmation of the covenant commitment that defines the boundaries of covenant community. It encouraged the Israelites, and it encourages us to keep God at the center of all that they did, of every relationship that they had. Whenever the Israelites recited this, they acknowledged that Yahweh wasn't some unknowable God. Yahweh was the God who loved them and created them and knew them and called them. Yahweh was the God who redeemed them. And Yahweh is a God who intervenes in history on behalf of the chosen people and enters into relationship with them and calls them in relationship to one another. In this passage, the covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was the same covenant that was made with Moses and the generation that entered the promised land and every generation after, including you and me. Despite our sin, God redeems us. And so we look to this law, this Old Testament law, knowing that the laws don't save us, but they are a gift of God to us as the redeemed people of God drawing us into closer relationship with our Creator and with one another. And so as we go about our lives this week, I pray that we will keep this at our center, that we can understand the deep love of God and the deep love that we're called to have for the God that created us and for those around us. With that in mind, let's pray. Gracious God, you are so good. And even when... We can't understand you haven't turned your back on us. Nothing we could do or say, nothing in our history could make you say, I've had enough. In fact, you come to us and form a covenant with us over and over again, a covenant sealed in the blood of our Savior. And we pray that as we consider that covenant, as we consider these rules and guidelines that you've laid out, that our lives might demonstrate your grace and love to one and to others, that together we could be in relationships that are more whole, whole and reflect more closely your love. We thank you, God, for your love for us, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we conclude our worship together, I invite you to stand and sing our final hymn.